We are in the middle of a two-week period as a church of prayer and fasting. And uh, we have... Uh, just in case you're visiting, that doesn't mean we're not eating over the, ne- the last week and this week. Some people may be doing that. I don't know. But really what I, what I was encouraging you guys to do is over the course of these two weeks to find some kind of rhythm, find some kind of opportunity to take a moment, take a meal, take a day, whatever it is for you, and fast. And, and then spend that time that you would normally be eating and then throughout that day in prayer. And letting that, that hunger pain or that, that growling of the stomach remind you that you're dependent upon God. And so we're doing this for last week and we'll do it until next Sunday. And uh, whatever your rhythm is, whether you're doing one meal a day, one meal a day a week or a whole day a week, whatever it is, or maybe you've someone who, because of health reasons, you couldn't fast from food, but maybe you're fasting from someone else. Whatever it is, I hope that you are finding that to be a blessing. I hope that you are finding that to actually be drawing you closer to the Lord. And and I know it may be hard, especially if you've never done it before. I know it may be inconvenient at times, but I hope what you're finding is the benefits that come with fasting. And so, uh, keeping that in mind, today's message and next week's messages are going to be loosely connected to that uh, idea of prayer and fasting. So just in case you're wondering, where am I pulling this from uh, for the next two weeks? It's loosely connected to uh, the theme of prayer and fasting. And so this morning with Ezra... That's where we're going. And so um, before we jump into Ezra chapter 8, we got to get a little bit of a running start. And, and especially if you've not been in Ezra before, maybe it's a book you didn't even know that's in the Bible. It's something we need to kind of have an idea of what's happening before we, we get to that point. So let's, let's do that first. So here's what's going on in the book of Ezra. In the history of Israel at this point. So remember, Old Testament centers on a certain group of people uh, that God has been working through, has a special relationship with called the Israelites. And they have, over the course of history, they've been in slavery with Egypt. That'll be your, your book of Exodus, where you see them coming out of that slavery. Uh, for, for 400-something years, they are in slavery, and God leads them out. And he leads them through this desert, this wilderness. And as they're going through that, he's teaching them about who he is. You see, they had been in Egypt for 400-something years. So every person who came out of Egypt had not known God outside of Egypt. If you thought about that before, every person of those Israelites who came out of Egypt, they had not known God apart from living in Egypt. And so while they're in Egypt, they're also being exposed to all kinds of other gods. You think about the guy who led them out of Israel, Moses. Moses was educated by the Egyptians, went through uh, Egyptian elementary, Egyptian middle school, Egyptian high school, Egyptian college. Everything he was educated in was Egyptian. And so there's all kinds of influences out there. Now, you had your Israelite people who were carrying on traditions and stuff, but it wasn't in a vacuum. And so God had need to teach the people that were coming out of that that slavery who he was and how he was different than all those other gods they had been exposed to. How he was better than all those other gods that they had been exposed to. And how they were supposed to worship him, not necessarily in the same way that they had seen other people worshiping other gods. And so he's teaching them during this time so that when he gets them to the spot where he's leading them to this land, they would be able to worship him as is appropriate of who he is. And so they, that God is doing that. And he's been telling them, here's the type of things that you should do and you shouldn't do. And that's the first five books of the, the uh, Old Testament, your Pentateuch, where you kind of get that, especially in books like later in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You get a lot of laws. Those are do's and don'ts and here's how you should do this and here's what you should avoid. That's so that they would know who their God is, how he's different and how they should worship him. Now, if you know uh, Israel's history and you read through your Old Testament, you find out they struggled. 
They struggled to obey God. They struggled to submit to the law. They struggled to get all that stuff right. And there was, there was periods of time in their history where they would be overtaken by other people. And God had told them, look, when you get in the land, if you don't obey me, then, then there's going to be a point where other people, not your people, are going to come and rule over you. And that's going to be judgment on you for not worshiping me because I'm telling you now, here's how you should do it. And so you see the book of Judges that kind of gives us these cycles where Israel would give in to worshiping other gods or they would give credit to some other God for something God himself had actually done. And God would raise up an enemy of Israel and he would allow them to, to come and overtake them. And then there would be periods where Israel would repent and they would realize they're wrong and they would, they would turn back to God and God would then raise up a deliverer for them to free them from that. And we see these cycles and that was their, their history. It was riddled with, with things. And eventually it got to a point and we see several of the prophets in the Old Testament talking about this to Israel. Look, you, you're, you're about to be in a spot that you can't get out of. You're about to be in a spot where God is going to hand you over to some of the greatest armies of all time. And you're going to be led into captivity for years on top of years on top of years. And that ultimately happened. Where the people of of God were not repentant and God raised up armies, the Babylonian army, uh, the Assyrian army, and they each came and overtook the people of God. Took them out of their land. Uh, the Babylonians particularly who overthrew the southern kingdom of Judah and, and, uh, and then uh, they, they took them to their land and, and left some of the people there but they took some of the leaders, some of the young men. You, you think about Daniel at that point. The Daniel that you guys know from the Bible growing up. The stories Daniel was in captivity while we knew Daniel. And so the book of Ezra then picks up with a group of people who have been in captivity. They've been under the Babylonians. Now they're, they're traded hands and the Persians have taken over. They've been in captivity for a while. And the book of Ezra picks up with a new Persian king, a guy named Cyrus. And one of the things that Cyrus had a practice of doing with his captors, he wanted to, to have good um, relationships with those that he was ruling over. And so one of the things he did was he practiced religious freedom. And so if you were a a person who worshipped this God, he wanted to allow you to be able to worship that God. And if you were a a person or a group of people who worshipped these guys, he wanted to to make sure you had the freedom to do that. And so when it came to the Jewish people, he was doing the same thing. He wanted to give them the freedom to be able to worship their God and to practice their religion. But in order for them to do that, they needed to be able to worship in the temple, which had been destroyed back in Jerusalem. And so as the book of Ezra opens up, what you get is King Cyrus giving this decree where he's allowing some people to go back so that they can start to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem so that they can continue to worship their God as is appropriate. And so in the first couple chapters, what you see is this first group of people go back and they're, they're rebuilding the altar first. The altar where, where they would take the people or they would take the animals that were, that were sacrificing and they would sacrifice it on the altar. So they get the altar built and they build it according to the, the specs that God had previously given and they resume making sacrifices. They, stay, they begin worshiping God in the way that he had prescribed for them to worship. They begin keeping some of the feasts and the festivals that they had stopped keeping and so they start to get their world back in a rhythm of worshiping God. They start to get their world back in that rhythm that they had been out of for so long and that's their first year back. And their second year back they realize that they've got to continue to build this temple and the foundation of the temple had, itself had been destroyed and they need to rebuild the foundation of the temple and so in their second year they begin rebuilding the foundation and they come to a point, there's this beautiful point in the book of Ezra where the foundation of the temple I mean the temple's not even erected yet it's just the foundation is back built and there's two groups of people that we see, there's the young guys 20-somethings who had not seen the original temple. 
and they've been setting out on this task and they just know we're doing something great. We're doing something where we're rebuilding the temple. It's going to be good for our people. And they're celebrating. And they're filled with joy and they're loud shouting as they celebrate. But then you've got a group of people who had been in this captivity and they were old enough that when they had, they had come into that captivity, they had previously seen the other temple. There was a few people like that who they were in captivity but they knew what the previous temple looked like. They knew it had been destroyed. And they weren't shouting. They weren't cheering. They weren't celebrating. They wept when the foundation was built. And they wept. And, and, and Ezra tells us that there was a combination of their voices. You couldn't hear them weeping because of the loud celebration. But together there was weeping and there was joy. And it's a beautiful moment that, that really is worth some digging into because I think there's some, some beauty in there about how generations worship together. And how for some generations, one of the same event can be perceived as one thing and with a response of uh, a certain response before another generation because of history, because of perspective, it's viewed in a different way, still worshipful, but with a different response and the two should be able to go together. It's a beautiful moment. And one day I might preach a sermon on that but not today. And so they keep going on and they get the temple built and, and uh, so the temple's finally built and they're able to resume uh, a little bit more. But then in the process of that being built, before it was finished, there was people in the surrounding towns, other people, not Jewish people, who were starting to get threatened by the fact that Jerusalem was being rebuilt and this temple's being rebuilt. And so they come along and they want to help at one point, but see, they're not full-bred Jews. See, these, some of these were people who had been left behind and they intermarried and they've intermingled and they were basically viewed as traitors. And so the answer is no, you cannot have a hand in rebuilding this temple. And that bothers them. And so they start to revolt and they start to cause trouble, ultimately ending up in them sending a letter to now a new king at this point of Persia. And they, they're writing this letter about the Jewish people. And basically the result is the king says they have to stop building the temple. They had been working on it for all these years. Before it's finished, now they have a pause in the middle of that process. At least 10 years, they had to stop building. Another king comes along, reviews the records of previous kings, and realizes that Cyrus, the original king, had given this decree, so he allows them to resume. This is the process that they're going through. Stop and go, stop and go. Ultimately, get to the spot where they've rebuilt the temple. And when it finally gets there, we're about chapter 7 now, is where we're introduced to the guy whose name is on the book, Ezra. And we find out that Ezra was in Persia. He was a scribe. He's a scribe means he was studying the Old Testament, the scriptures. He was making copies maybe for scrolls, but he was an expert in the Old Testament. He was the guy that you would go to if you needed to understand what God meant when he said this. And if you wanted to know how God viewed certain things, he was a teacher. And so now the king that's over Persia at the time when Ezra's there is sending Ezra to Jerusalem. Temple's been built, and he wants Ezra to go so that Ezra can teach the people how to worship their God. He wants to make sure that the people are in their land now, they're, they're, they're in their temple, but he needs to make sure that they know how to worship their God. So Ezra, you're the expert in the law, you're the scribe, go back and teach them. And oh, by the way, Ezra, as you go, I'm going to send you with a lot of gold and a lot of silver from the king's treasury. And, and the king wants him to use this to buy sacrifices that are needed to dedicate the temple, to continue their worship. And then anything else that you need, Ezra, in order to appropriately worship your God. And by the way, this king's not a Yahweh worshiper. He didn't worship the God of the Bible. It's just religious freedom, religious pluralism, if you will. And he's allowing this to take place. So Ezra now is preparing for his journey. Let me ask you now. Ezra. Preparing to go and set out and do something the Lord has called him to do. 
Set out on a mission for God. To go and do the work of God. How would you prepare for that? What would you do if you were being sent out by God to carry out God's work? If you were being sent out on mission for God to do something that God had called you to do, if you were going to, to, to help people worship their God better, how would you respond to God? And, and how would you approach God in a way that he responds to you? This is what Ezra does in chapter 8. He starts to gather some people together. Heads of families, making sure he has representatives from each of the 12 tribes. And he's going to bring them together, them and their families, and they're going to accompany him on the journey. He makes sure he gets some people from the tribe of Levi, because Levites were the only ones who could be priests before the Lord. And so if they're going to worship God in the appropriate way, they've got to have the right people. So he makes sure he gets some Levites. And he's got them all gathered together. And you would think by that point, they're anxious, ready to go. You would think that they're going to get on the road, but before they do, Ezra does something that helps us understand how we should approach God. And so here's where we're going this morning. God responds to the humble, not the haughty. God responds to the humble, not the haughty. So look with me at Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. We're going to talk about humility a little bit. If God responds to the humble, what, is we need to, what do we need to know about humility? First thing I want us to see this morning as we look at these verses is humility drives us to depend on God. And look at verse 21. I called for a fast there by the Ahava Canal so that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek from him a safe journey for us, our children, and all our property. So keep in mind, Ezra, he's got all these people, these families, kids, all the way up to elderly with him. He's traveling, and he's got all that silver and gold. And he'll be passing through some treacherous territory. He'll be passing through some, some territory that's dangerous. He knows he's setting out to accomplish something that's pretty significant. And before he starts, he calls for a fast. He calls for a fast, and the reason he calls for a fast, so that we might humble ourselves before God. The purpose in Ezra fasting, first and foremost, is that them, the people, and by the way, this is a public fast, and side note, in case any of you over the course of the week have struggled with Matthew chapter 6 that says, and if you proclaim to people that you are fasting, or when you're fasting, don't make it look like you're fasting, very loose paraphrase, but basically Jesus is saying, don't make it look like you're fasting so that people will see your righteousness before men, and maybe someone has said to you this week, or maybe you've struggled with, how can I fast if people know I'm fasting? That's not the point of Jesus' words. When Jesus was saying that, he's talking about spiritual leaders of the day who were making it look like they were, they were really weary, they were really worn down from their fasting so that people would look at them and go, man, you're really spiritual. He was going after hypocrisy. It's not a formula. And so just because someone knows you're fasting doesn't mean you've canceled out your fast. By the way, Ezra calls all these hundreds, maybe thousands of people to fast together. They all knew each other was fasting. Just put that in your hopper. And so they fast. So that they might humble themselves before the Lord. So fasting was a way for them to humble themselves before God. 
Because when you remove something that you depend on, when you remove something that makes you comfortable, when you remove something that you are used to having in your life and it's no longer there for a period of time or whatever the case may be, all of a sudden you start to realize how much you depend on that. And in order to get through that season of fasting, that period of fasting, or whatever that is, you have to now depend on something else. God would be the goal. And so when you remove something you depend on, it reminds you of how much you should actually be depending upon God. It reminds you that God is the one who provides all that you have. And when those seasons come where you're fasting, and maybe you've experienced it this week where you were going without a meal and your stomach was rumbling and you knew how easy it would be to just go grab something to snack on. But then you remembered in that moment, man, the fact that I even can go and grab something to snack on is a blessing from God because he has provided all that I have. And hopefully in that moment like that, it drove you to depend more upon God. And maybe you said a prayer like, God, would you help me to get through this? Maybe you said, God, would you help me to to honor this fast? God, would you help me to draw closer to you? Here's the point. Ezra wanted his people and Ezra himself wanted to depend upon God. And it takes humility to do that. Humble people depend upon God. Prideful people do not depend upon God. You see, we've got to depend upon God more than we depend upon our comfort. Because comfort is something we depend upon. If I can just have my life the way I want my life, where it's comfortable for me to live, and if I can just have the things in my life that that I like to have in my life that make me comfortable, then I can approach God in a way that's worshipful. But what happens if those things get removed? Is all of a sudden, am I able to approach God? Or is it revealed that I was depending far too much on those things that made me comfortable? I was putting too much uh, stock in the fact of, that I should be comfortable in the way I live my life. When, in fact, comfort is never something God guarantees. It's a blessing from him. Because if I'm comfortable, it means God has given me many good things that I'm enjoying. But listen, comfortable people don't lean on God. It's a lot harder for someone who's living a life dependent upon comfort to lean on God. And you get this. I mean, just think think about this. Think about a time in your life where you were not comfortable, where you didn't have the means that you needed to to, to pay bills, or maybe you didn't have the the, the home that you were trying to get in. You were in between things, or maybe, maybe you just didn't have all the things that you have now, and you were barely making ends meet. You had to really stay on top of a budget, whereas now maybe you don't. I mean, just whatever the case may be, you didn't have that. And weren't you more dependent upon God in that season of life than you had ever been before? Weren't you turning to God more, depending on him for each step of the way, God, would you help me get through this day? Maybe you were in a high-stress situation and you knew, I can't get through this until you were turning to God. God, would you get, get me through this? God, would you be my strength? And every step of the way, you were dependent upon him and you weren't comfortable but you would turn to him. And then maybe another season of your life comes in and, and you're now comfortable. You, you're able to, to make ends meet and have surplus. And, and maybe you've got more than what you need and you're enjoying the good things. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. But in the process, maybe you've gotten to a spot where you're comfortable and you're not so much turning up to God in, in the midst of all that. Maybe you're not saying, God, would you help me to get through this for things you used to say that for? Because now, you know, I've just got to hear, I'll take care of it like this. Or, you know, God, would you, would you provide for me what I need to make my bills? And now you're going, boom, check's coming in. Direct, direct deposit, it's going to be there. 
And, and, and so you've less depending upon God now than you were then because now you're more comfortable. It's a lot harder when you're comfortable to depend upon God. It takes making yourself uncomfortable to remind yourself of your need to depend upon God. It takes humbling ourselves to remind ourselves that I need God. And humility drives us to depend upon God. We need to depend upon God more than we do convenience. You see, alongside comfort, sometimes convenience becomes our idol. Sometimes convenience becomes our God. I just, I want ease of living. I want, I want to be able to do things without struggle. I want to be able to just get things accomplished and do it in a way that's highly efficient and there's no obstacles in the way. I just want convenience. I want it right there when I need it. And sometimes it's convenience that keeps us from following where God might be leading. Because we consider where we think God might be leading, and we're going, but I lose this. Or I won't have this available. Or, or I won't have this at my fingertips. Or it'll be a lot harder, and I, I'm not sure I want to go through that struggle. Sometimes we elevate convenience, and we depend upon convenience more than we depend upon God. And humility drives us to depend upon God. And so I ask you, have you considered that it's possible that God may have allowed, maybe even caused, some of the circumstances that you find yourself in that make you uncomfortable, that are inconvenient, so that he might get you humbled and to a spot where you would depend upon him Maybe God is trying to show you by allowing something into your life or even causing something to happen in your life that you have been placing more dependence upon those things than you have on him and he loves you too much to leave you there. And instead, he wants you to learn to depend upon him because humility drives us to depend upon God. And so Ezra called for a fast that they might humble themselves before God. Another thing about humility that we see here is, uh, and, and, and actually before we get there, Deuteronomy chapter 8, you've heard Jesus quote this, but, but just here's God's perspective on this. Deuteronomy chapter 8, he's talking about the people who had wandered in the desert and how God had to provide food, and he says, so he, God, humbled you by making you hungry. Did you get that? God humbled you. He's talking about the Israelites who gathered, who wandered in the desert. He humbled you by making you hungry and then feeding you with unfamiliar manna, the bread that came from heaven. He did this to teach you that humankind cannot live by bread alone, but also by everything that comes from the Lord's mouth. It's possible that God is trying to humble you. All right, but the other thing is humility drives us to prepare our heart. Humility drives us to prepare our heart. And back in verse 21 again, notice where they are. When he calls the fast. He calls the fast by the, the Ahava Canal. They have not left on their journey yet. They've got all the people gathered. They've got all the things they need. They could get going. I mean, they've got several days journey ahead of them. They could get going. And yet Ezra stops and says, before we go, before we set out to carry the Lord's work, before we set out on this journey, before we go, we're going to fast that we might be humbled before the Lord because humility drives us to prepare our hearts. It would be arrogant for us to go about God's work and never stop to seek God in that and prepare our hearts. 
It would be arrogant of us to think that I can go and carry this out, what God is calling me to do, and yet never prepare my heart for what God wants to do. A couple weeks ago, I was at Tinker, and I was giving some briefs to two different groups on a spiritual fitness. It's what the Air Force calls spiritual um, religion and things like that. It's called spiritual fitness because it fits into their concept of a, a comprehensively fit airman. So they talk about physical fitness, and they talk about mental fitness, and they talk about social fitness, and then they talk about spiritual fitness. Incidentally, Spiritual fitness does not get the same airtime as the other ones. And so this particular day, as the chaplain, I was getting to go and brief people on why it's important that you pursue spiritual fitness. I was talking to them why they should consider it as important. And I went about the first brief and and had prepared uh, for that and went about, did it, and went great, got great responses. And I had about a 10, 15-minute window before I had to go to do the next one. And as I'm getting in my car to drive, a thought occurs to me. I had never once, in preparing for that brief and doing that brief, never once stopped to prepare my heart for what God wanted to do in that. Didn't even ask him about it. Just got the PowerPoint, looked it over. I've got this. Here we go. Never once stopped to prepare my heart. And as I'm going to my second one is when I realize it. And I had to stop. And I had to repent of that because it's arrogance. Because I didn't even stop to think that I needed God for what I was about to go and do. Didn't even occur to me. It was so easy. I was depending upon my own ability. And I had to stop and prepare my heart for that second one. It's arrogant for us to press on and do what God's calling us to do. Live lives in the name of God and yet never prepare our heart. Never ask God to show us where our heart is in the matter. Because it's the heart that's more important. See, it's not the fast that's, that's the most important thing here. It's the, the result of the fast. It's the motivation behind fasting so that they would humble themselves before the Lord before they even carried out what God was calling them to do. Humility drives us to prepare our hearts. When's the last time that you stopped to say, God, where's my heart? I'm serving you in this area. I'm serving you in that area. I'm living my life claiming to live it in your name and in your power. And yet I've never stopped to to seek you on my heart. To ask you, is my heart humble before you? Or am I just doing all these things in your name, but yet doing it in my own strength? There's no part of you involved in this. When's the last time you stopped to do that? See, Micah, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, picks this up in Micah chapter 6. And here's some questions that are being asked as this this group of people are trying to figure out how to worship the Lord. And they say, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? And, you know, on one level, the answer could be yes. That's what the law calls for. Then they go on in verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And, and the questions are being asked like, how do I please God? How do I worship God? Would he be pleased? Would he be worshipped if I did all of these things? Many of which can be found in the law of God. And yet what had happened was people were starting to just go through the motions. Well, here's the formula. God says do this and therefore he'll be pleased. So I'm just going to go through the motions and expect that God's going to be pleased. Never stopping to prepare their hearts. Micah goes on in verse 8 and he addresses it and he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? In other words, the attitudes of your heart are more important than the work that you're doing. You may be serving in the Lord's name. You may be carrying out things that is done in the name of God. But what's more important is your heart. He could care less about what you're doing if your heart is not there. Jesus, when he came on the scene, these are the people he was the hardest on. People who were doing things in the name of God, teaching in the name of God. They were being spiritual models in the name of God, and yet their heart was far from God. They're going through the motions, doing God's work, never having their heart prepared. Humility drives us to prepare our heart. But humility also drives us to seek God. And so we go back to verse 21. And the second ver- part of verse 21 is they, he called for a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and seek from him. Seek from him a safe journey for us, for our children, and for all of our property. Part of the reason that Ezra was calling for this fast was that they might be humbled. And in the process of humbling some- themselves, they would seek from God something they needed. Something they lacked. You know God wants his children to seek from him? I mean, that's what children do from a father. They seek what they don't have. They seek what they need and what they lack. It's, it's okay, it's, it's expected that God's children would come to God and ask him for what they need, what they lack, even what they want sometimes. Here's the problem though. Some of us don't feel like we can go and ask God for things, especially if it's for us. Some of us don't feel like we can go before God and seek from him what we need because we think it's selfish to seek from God, but you know it's actually prideful to not seek from God what you need. Because here's the mindset. I'm not going to seek God in this because I can do it myself. I'm not going to seek him unless things get really bad and I can no longer control it. Then I will seek God, but I don't want to bother him with this little part of my life. And yet, at the same time, we have that thinking that we think is, is honorable, that we think is humble. It's actually prideful because we're saying at the same time, I don't need God to help me in this part of my life. I've got this. And yet, God wants from his children to seek him for what we need, to seek him for the things that we lack. Jesus picks up on this in the New Testament and he says, if you abide in me, then I will abide in you. And in the course of that conversation, he says, ask anything in my name and it will be given to you. James, the the New Testament author James picks up on it and he says, why do you fight and you quarrel among yourselves? And he talks about the reason. He says, the reason is you ask for things, but you have the wrong attitude in the way you ask for it. Or you're fighting with one another because you're trying to get something that you don't have, but you've never asked for it. James chapter 1, he would say, if you lack wisdom, ask. God wants us to seek from him. We are people who are dependent upon God. The only way to approach God is humbly. There's no room for us to approach God, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the highest being that there's our creator, our savior. There's no other way to approach him except humbly. And humility drives us to seek God for the things that we have. It doesn't matter how small it is. Doesn't matter how big it is. God is a God who can be concerned about giant things in countries that you and I have never been, and even tiny things in the midst of your life that seem trivial. God wants us to seek Him. And so that's what they're doing, seeking Him for safety, because they're going to be going through some treacherous territory. Now, here's the thing about, about that. 
tied to that last point, humility drives us to seek God. Humility drives us to live by faith. Because here's what Ezra goes on in 22 and 23 to say. I was embarrassed to request soldiers and horsemen from the king to protect us from the enemy along the way because we had said to the king, the good hand of our God is on everyone who is seeking him, but his great anger is against everyone who forsakes him. So Ezra had at his fingertips the ability to bring an army with him. The king would have sent his soldiers with Ezra and the people to accompany them to ensure that they had a safe path. And yet Ezra is seeking God for safety. Ezra is seeking God for protection. And yet he could have just said, send your armies. And yet he tells us, I was embarrassed to ask the king. Why? Because he had already told the king about God's character. He had already told the king about this God that he worships. And he had told the king that God... God's, God's hand is on everyone who is seeking him. And his hand is, his anger is against everyone who forsakes him. And so the, the, the struggle that Ezra was, was facing was, do I trust God in this situation? Or do I depend on what's convenient? Do I depend on what's there? He could have. In fact, he could have even gone about it this way. He could have said, you know what, God? I know you want us to accomplish what we're setting out to do. And I know you want to see this done. And it appears that you, you have raised up this great Persian army and the king is even willing to send some soldiers with us. It, it could have been very easy for Ezra to say, God, I see this as your provision through this pagan king. We're going to take that as your provision and never give it another thought. Could have. I mean, we do that all the time, don't we? But what if God wants us to depend more upon him and we too quickly give up on faith and instead we go to what's convenient? Instead we go to what's at our fingertips. And in our country, in our civilization here, we have a lot of stuff at our fingertips that other people don't have. So where other people are forced to live by faith, you and I are not. And I'm not saying, by the way, that if your kid gets sick or you get sick, that you should refuse medical help. not saying that. Don't be foolish. What I'm saying is check your heart, though. Because even in the midst of receiving medical care, even in the, in, the, in the midst of receiving those things, there's an attitude that can be there that is dependent upon it or dependent upon the God who allowed us to create and come up with it. God can heal through miracle. He can heal through medicine. It's still the same God behind both. That's where you've got to be. And Ezra had, had already said to this king, here's the character of our God. And he felt in this situation it would be to compromise what he had said about this king. It would be to not live by faith to go ahead and accept this army. Sometimes God wants us to live by faith, but you and I, we fail to do that because we've got something at our fingertips that makes it a lot easier. And we'll even tell ourselves that God has provided that. Instead, we need to go seek God and say, God, is that your provision? Or are you calling me to do this differently? Humility drives us to live by faith. And then verse 23, we fasted and prayed to our God about this and he answered us. He answered us. Because God responds to the humble, not the haughty. Jeff, you can come on out. God responds to those whose hearts are submitted to him. They're surrendered to him. And, and so I don't, I don't know where, you, where you're at this morning. And, and the question I would throw out is, is your heart humble? And before you, you quickly go and say, of course it is, yes it is, take time to assess that. Take time to go before the Lord and say, God, what's in my heart? Because I don't want to just automatically assume I'm humble before you when maybe there's something in my heart that I've been justifying for a long time, that I've been excusing for a long time, but maybe today God wants to reveal it to you, shine a light on it and say, but yeah, but there's this pride here. 
And man, spiritual humility in, in a church culture, it can creep in so subtly. And we can be convinced that we are humbled in heart and we'll never know that there's actually pride lurking being disguised as humility. And we might be fooled because we've surrounded ourselves with people who have the same pride and it's manifesting itself in the same way and we've all agreed that we're humble before God and we may never see it. It may be that that pride creeps in and it can be oh so subtly, but sometimes that pride can creep in and it can be about the church I attend, the denomination that I belong to, and it gets elevated above anything else. And pride can be there even though you're going to church and you're excited about what's going on at that church. But pride has a way of just slipping in there and saying, yeah, but let's make it about the church, not about God. Let, let's make it about the denomination, not about, not about whether you're, you actually have trusted in Christ, not about whether you're living a life of faith. It slips in so easily. Sometimes pride can creep in and it's, and it's tied to a position that I have a title that I hold. Maybe you're a supervisor. Maybe, maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you've got a, a certain servant role. As a pastor, man, this is easy for me. I could take that title of pastor and I could let that start to swell pride up in me. God, you must be really pleased with me because you, you're using me in this role. God, you can't use everybody in this role, but you're using me. It could be so easy to creep in because I have a title because I have a position. And especially if that is associated with me doing God's work, man, I can spin that. Pride is good. Maybe you've been elevated in your job or your, your, your uh, workplace and you look at it and you say, God, you must be blessing me because of how good I am. You must be really pleased with me and it may not have anything to do with you. It may be something that you're not even aware of that God's raising you up so that he can use you for something down the line, but it has nothing to do with your heart. Because if you're honest, maybe, maybe you, would, you would see my heart's not humble before God. You know, pride can creep in so subtly. Sometimes pride in, our, in a church environment especially, it can creep in and it hides itself like this. Sometimes pride is when I prefer myself and I hold myself over people that we have differing views on things. And I think my view's the best view. My view's the right view. And I'm talking about secondary matters. I'm not talking about orthodox matters, foundational matters, things like salvation is only through Christ alone, things like Jesus is God, um, that, that Mary gave birth as a virgin. I'm not talking about those kind of things. Those kind of things we need to hold the line on. But there's other areas where people for centuries have debated and disagreed, godly people, submitted people, people who have trusted in Christ and yet they disagree on this. And yet in our pride sometimes... We elevate ourselves, in my view, is the right view. Anybody who holds anything less, we elevate ourselves over. Sometimes it creeps in so subtly. And there's other areas, and I, I can stop harping on it now. But here's what I want to do this morning. God responds to the humble, not the haughty. Before Jeff sings over us and we go before the Lord with whatever it is he wants to say to us, I've got two confessions up here that I'd like us all to read together this morning. The first one is more geared toward, toward, toward you if, if you've trusted in Christ, but man, there's, there's stuff that's crept in. The other one's geared towards those of you who maybe this morning you don't have a relationship with the Lord. And yes, at the root of that is pride. And, and maybe you've, you've never realized it, but maybe this morning you're realizing the reason you haven't believed in Christ, the reason you haven't trusted in him is because you can't bring yourself to trust in a savior. Why would you need that? Why, why would I need God to send someone to live a life like Jesus lived when I can do good on my own? 
And the reality is we fail every day. But Christ lived the life that we couldn't live and he did it in our place. And he went to the cross and he took what you and I er, uh, deserved. It's not what he deserved, it's what we deserve. He took that for us. And then he rose from the dead to a new type of life. And so when we trust in Christ, we have a substitute. Someone who has lived the life that we couldn't live and then he died the death that we deserve to die and took the punishment that's ours so we would not have that and instead we get his new life that he raised from the dead because in him we also have a savior. And to refuse to believe in Christ is to refuse to acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of what God offers and at that root is pride. And so that second confession is more geared towards those of you who are in that spot. So all together, we're going to read these. Doesn't matter if one applies to you or doesn't. Doesn't matter. Some of you are going to read these and you're not going to search your heart. Others of you, God's going to use it and these words are going to stick with you. And others of you, maybe you're already there. But regardless of where you are, we're going to all read this together. So we'll start with confession one. God, I confess my pride to you today. I have refused to humble myself before you because I have elevated myself above you. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And confession two, everybody. God, I confess my pride to you today. I have refused to humble myself before you because I have trusted in things other than you. Today, I, a sinner, submit to you, God. I trust in Jesus who died for my sins and rose to new life. And now let's spend some time before the Lord as Jeff sings over us. Break our hearts, oh God. Break our hearts. we dismiss there'll be a few people available up here in the back who are available to pray with you and if there's anything you want prayer about just come up to them let them know and so if you're part of the prayer team while I pray feel free to make your way some of you can be up front some of you in the back there uh, to be available for anyone who would like to pray and so God as we close out this morning I know you've been speaking I know you're talking to someone I know you're shining light on areas of of hearts that have been dark for a while. And God, I pray that you would do so in your gentleness and in your mercy and in your compassion. And yet, God, if there's hardness of heart that needs, needs a little more force behind it, God, would you break us? There's nothing worse than living lives before you filled with pride all the while believing it's humble. 
God, we need you to show that to us. And so God, do the work you need to do. Let your spirit be what each person needs this morning. Say what each person needs to hear. And draw us to you that we might humble ourselves before you. And then God, do what you want to do in us, through us, in spite of us. And do it for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you guys next week.